Hello, my name is Anna Keys, and I will be having a conversation with Grace Detravara for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is February 21st, it is a Wednesday, and this is being recorded at 313A Pulaski Street, Apartment 1 in Brooklyn, and our zip code is um, 11206. Can you tell me your name and age? My name is Grace Detrevera, and I am a young 55-year-old spiritual black trans woman. Thank you. Um, what are your gender pronouns? Miss, she, and her. How would you describe your gender? I'm a heterosexual woman. Okay. And when and where were you born? I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Okay. Um, what year were you born? I'm um, 1962. Tell me a bit about your childhood. Um, wow. Um, I grew up as an only child far as what my parents uh, conceived. I was the only child, but I had plenty company. I had a very, uh, my family was very accommodating, meeting my mother and father. They were very accommodating. They made sure that I had, you know, um, children in my life, like my cousins, um, very close family members. Um, however, it was still kind of lonely because I knew that I was different at an earlier age. And I knew that I came, I, I came from a family that was, that endorsed tradition. And I found myself always hiding in clear sight um, because I wanted to express at an early age, my identity, even though I didn't know what identity was, but I knew it wasn't like my male cousins. So I, I had a lot of personal struggles as a young child. Speaking to how that, that feeling, right? Because um, I felt it too. Tell, tell me about, to step away from, we're gonna return to childhood, but tell me about an early encounter you had with the trans community. Wow, um, when I, uh, at age 14 years old, I became a very rebellious child, and, or teenager, you can say, and um, I began to be very rebellious and obnoxious and almost disrespectful to my parents, so I started running away from home, and I used to have this, um, this thing that I would do. Um, when I would run away from home, it was always during the day, but as soon as it got dark, I would get like, oh my goodness, it's scary out here. And I would always find myself going to a police station and going to the desk and telling them, I ran away from home, I want to go home. I did this for like, I think like the whole year of 13 years old, 14 years old, maybe even 11 years old. But when I got to be 14, my parents, I believe it was my dad, he wanted to teach me a lesson that you can't continue to hold us hostage with your theatrics of running away from home. And he had uh, uh, the officers put me inside the bullpen and it scared the living daylights out of me. But they, and he was in cahoots with the, with the people in the police station to try to show some sort of tough love or whatever. However, um, they were uh, bringing in people who had actually did crimes. And um, even though they kept me away from everyone, um, the first encounter with a, what they called back then a drag queen, um, but it was a very pretty, uh, uh, male person who was dressed in women's apparel a wig and makeup and you know um and they were being described as what they were by everybody from the officers to the other uh 
prisoners that they were handcuffed with. Now remember, I wasn't handcuffed. I was just sitting in the bullpen. This was a tough love situation that my, my father and the police station were going to teach me because remember, I had become very accustomed to when it became like seven o'clock at night. I was like, oh my God, it's nighttime. I gotta go home. I'm scared. I don't want to be out here anymore. Okay. And um, um, I remember the what we will call her a trans woman today, but I remember uh, approaching her or she approaching me and um, she's saying, what are you doing in there, little young girl? And it was the first time someone actually had said to me and addressed me as a girl in public. And I was just so eluded by, and positively eluded by it, to the point where I even remember their name. And remember, this was, I was, I'm 55 now. I was 13 when this, I think for 13 or 14. The person's name was Tawana. I'll never forget her as long as I live. She was the first trans person who ever addressed me as, I addressed it myself inside my head. And that was one of my first encounters. That is so special. <laughs> yeah, it is. Wow. Wow. I, wow. So t tell me, where exactly was this police station? In Detroit. It was, uh, I grew up in a, um, a middle class uh, integrated neighborhood. And um, what part of Detroit? Um, they call it the um, north side of Detroit. Um, now it's uh, considered a very, uh, uh, it's not integrated anymore. It's all black now. Um, but in the early 70s and um, probably like to 1982, it was really uh, a mixture of community with Caucasians, Asians, and a sprinkled few of, of African-American families because the majority of the families that lived there were General Motors, Chrysler, um, automobile workers, which my family were. My mother is a uh, UAW re representative today, um, and she's a retiree of working at General Motors, and my dad worked at Chrysler. So I come from the automobile, um, an automobile industry family. Um, just to step back for a second, um, this trans woman, or what we'd say now, yes. trans woman, mm -hmm. um, do you remember anything else about her? Um, I never got to see her again. Um, I remember um, when I did finally leave, uh, when I finally, when I finally, when I finally uh, departed Michigan, I remember um, having um, thoughts of wanting to find her because she was pretty uh, famous uh, in the trans community back then in the 70s. She was a known um, sex worker. Um, so, you know, my thought process and the little information that I knew, I thought, well, maybe, you know, even though I'm older, I don't know why I thought this, but could I find her, at, you know, 10 years later? under the same tutelage that I met her, you know, um, as a sex worker. I mean, it's pretty sad to say, but that's the only thing I knew about her. Mm. And I found myself, uh, we have a very notorious place in, in Detroit called Palmer Park. And that is where, and it's still like that to this day, where you have a lot of sex workers work there. So I remember um, visiting home as an adult and actually going to Palmer Park. You know, I kind of dressed down, I put a hat on, a hoodie, and so I can blend into the, into the environment. And um, I never was able to find her. I never had the experience of actually meeting her or having a communication with her since I was 13. Wow. Yeah. But it sticks with you. Of course it does. So, speaking of this, the terminology and how we, it's evolved over time, um, but we currently use the term trans to apply to many different people and it's, it's an umbrella term, right? So my question for you is, when was the first time you heard the term trans? Um, you know, 
The word trans, you know, when we look at, you know, if you're an educated person and me having an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree and getting ready to work on my master's, it always makes you look at the pronunciation and what the term actually means. And when you look into a Webster dictionary or any dictionary and you look up the word trans, it means transitioning. So I'm at odds or almost in disagreement when people want to label themselves as trans, but there's nothing transitionally happening. They are uh, going along with uh, the narrative that the public or the community has uh, particularly labeled uh, due to nobody wants to be a drag queen because it's affiliated with uh, uh, of, of a, a taste or a dress up or entertainment or something condescendingly not pure. Um, so I, I've always had a problem with that word because I look at the, what the word really means. It means transitioning. It does not mean if you're a drag queen, that's what you are. Um, however, a lot of times people in our community and definitely uh, through the capabilities of people wanting to be politically correct and not hurt your feelings or say something insensitive, they will say trans when the person that they're talking to is not trans. It's like, I'll give you an example. Charles RuPaul is not a, is not a trans person. Mm -hmm. However, if he's in a, um, if he's in a, uh, in a public forum, they will introduce him as a trans person, and I am just so glad that in later years he has become to correct them mm. and let people know that he is a gay man who is an entertainer and who looks good in a dress. Sure. So just to go back a little bit, my question was more so, when was the first time you heard of the term trans? Um, probably um, once I finished my undergraduate uh, at Hunter and I left Hunter and I went to NYU at Tisch School of the Arts and we would uh, have these creating uh, creative writing courses and they would talk about um, transitioning through different roles and then the professor would use the word like transgender and I was like what is that? and come to find out years later, that's me. <laughs> so that was how I basically, I found out on an educational level, not necessarily through any other type of form or narrative. Sure, sure. So um, to also just go back to your family for a second. Um, what is, tell me a bit about your religious background. Whoa. Um, um, a lot of, my religious background comes from the structuring of, of, a, of a Southern family. My grandparents were Southern and they taught their children with was my mom and my aunts and uncles to uh, practice the faith of Baptist or Pentecostal, Jesus Christ, Jehovah. Uh, and it was just passed on to us. However, as I got older, um, I believe the practicing of the religion became something that was only done ceremonially uh, for funerals, for holidays, but it wasn't practiced as I practice it today. I meditate, I fast, I'm a, a regular church going person, but I'm more spiritual than I am religious because as, you know, I've been very fortunate to have a a church where we practice, our model says church not as usual. Maybe it's because our, our pastor and the majority of the people who attend our church are same gender loving people. Um, our pastor, uh, senior pastor Vanessa M. Brown and her wife, Tawana Galls Brown, have been, have been profiled in the New York Times. They've been and Swerve Magazine and numerous other places. So we have a motto at Rivers of Living Water that basically says, church not as usual. So that, that's why I'm always inviting people because you don't, there's no structure. You can come dressed just how you are right now. Our pastor 
uh, give sermons and um, fatigues certain days. And then there are days that she will wear her, her clergy stuff. You never know what you're going to see at our church. But we are a very politically inclined church as well because we're part of the UCC. That's a, a LGBT affirming ministries. And we have 380 churches around the world. Wow. And Bishop Tolton, who is just was on World News Tonight, is our bishop of our church. And he goes to some of our most oh, uh, hellfire places like Uganda and, uh, and Nigeria and Cuba, where we are being persecuted and murdered, and Jamaica, where we're being persecuted and murdered and hurt, to just open churches where people of LGBT, NCI can just affirm themselves with their faith. Sure. So I go to a, a church like that. Yes. So. Um, to bridge this more to the location we're in today, what's your earliest memory of New York City? Wow. Oh, also, just wanted to do this is Melissa. Hello, Melissa. Um, How are you? Hi. And we're we're doing like an audio. It's like being recorded. Cool. Um, no, you're fine. I just wanted to like yeah. you know yeah, introduce you. Oh, of course. And this hi. is Grace. Yeah. How are you? Good. Okay. All right. Thank you. And you're fine. You're fine. Um, okay. Setback. What's your earliest memory of New York City? Um, again, I was a runaway child who was being rebellious. I don't have one of those horrible stories that are relevant stories to others, but my story is a different story. I ran away because I was looking for affirmation in a city where I knew through looking at movies, hearing about it because in high school, I was a dance major, ballet, modern dance or whatever. You always hear about New York. And um, when I ran away, um, I remember it was 1982 <laughs> and um, Port Authority had just been built on 42nd and 8th and 8th Avenue was brand new. And when I first came here, I had my little Detroit Free Press bag. And, cause I used to be a paper route. I used to have a paper route. And they gave us this little bag. Well, I had all my little belongings in there. And I'm 16 years old and um, I come to New York and the first time I stepped out of Port Authority, this man walks up to me and said, oh my God, you're pretty and so forth. Not knowing that he was a predator, not knowing that he had every bad intentions in the world for me, but I hadn't been, I didn't, I wasn't seasoned yet. And you have to be very careful even today about whom you talk to, what the subject matter, when people just walk up and start asking personal questions, there's usually, that's usually not a good thing. And um, it was a very surreal moment um, when I first came here because I was a little, you know, as we in the black community call it, I was a little country black child in a, in a, in a hip city. And it was not necessarily in my favor, but I believe the elements, the gods, or just good spirit, some helped me. Nothing really bad happened to me. Um, I remember just hanging out on 43rd Street where they had the, the legendary places like um, Blues and Sally's. And these were, as they call them, drag queen gay bars. And I'm hanging out there and I'm new on the area and I'm, I'm carrying this little Detroit free, bag, free press bag with me. And they had some other uh, feminine gay men and as we called them then drag queens and i'm fascinated i'm like oh my god look at these people here and um i end up that night meeting some as we called drag queens and they took me home with them and lo and behold coming to find out that they were sex workers but they were so protective with me because the first thing they said was oh girl we know you ain't from here 
And I was like, as soon as I opened my mouth, I guess I sound like a country bucket or whatever. And I say that with endearment. I don't say that to say that there's anything wrong with having a Southern accent, but I use it as a word of endearment. And it held me. People saw the genuineness. They could see I wasn't a seasoned New Yorker yet. So girls were really helpful to me. So I don't have any negative stories of when I first came here. I just had to, like I said, there was something carrying me. There was something my mother likes to say God was carrying me, and maybe he was. You know, nothing really bad happened to me because you hear so many horrific stories when you come to New York as a child at 15 and 16. Some horrific things could have happened, but they didn't. So it sounds like you're speaking to the communities you, um, when you first came here, you were introduced to, you were a part of in some extent. And what I would like to hear from you is tell me more about the communities that you've been a part of in the past and um, please feel free to say names. Um, um, I, 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 I'm very interested in knowing speci specifics, right? Well, were, I can, were you, I, I can yes. basically tell you that what led from the Times Square area to Harlem, I was, um, I was staying with some um, trans people that what we will call them today, but back then they were drag queens. Um, I was staying with them and we were living in um, Washington Heights in this little cluttered apartment with like two bedrooms and it was like eight people in there. It's like a bunch of sex workers, two uh, bisexual men who were into sex work themselves, and me. And nobody would let me get involved with the sex work. They said everybody wanted to protect me. I was just, I was like this project for everybody. I was just, you're gonna be our daughter and we're not gonna let you do this. You're gonna wash dishes, you're gonna wash the house, you're gonna do all this type of stuff, but you're not gonna do what we're doing. And I was like, why? I wanna do what you guys are doing because you look so happy or whatever. But years down the line, I, th I thought it was the best thing that ever happened to me. At the moment when it was happening, I didn't like it because I wanted to do what they were doing. But they, they shielded me from that. Um, tell me about how long you were a part of this community. T tell me also years. I wanna know exactly when this was occurring, and tell me if you remember anyone's names. Of course. I would love to hear some, um, some names. A lot of these people I speak about in my book that is soon to come out is called Grace, Transitions, and Other Views, a memoir. Um, three of the people that I talk about uh, consistently in my book is a girl who was known in the ballroom scene back in the 80s and 90s, almost legendary. Her name was Pam LeWong from the House of LeWong. And there was um, Candy LaBeja, who's still around today. And there was, um, God bless him, LaRock Bay, a, a legendary choreographer in Harlem, New York, um, who took me in. Um, and um, I, the story with me and LaRock Bay was kind of tragic because um, at the time, uh, AIDS had just, hit our country and this man was dying and um, while he was dying he had a, a, a dance company that was very famous in Harlem and he, uh, he took me in but when he began to get sick um, his family and his supporters and people who took care of his finances addressed me and said, what are you going to do? Because LaRock is getting ready to uh, go to the hospital and we don't know you. And um, I was like his little boy toy or girl toy or whatever you want to call me. He had took me off the streets and because I can no longer live with the trannies because they were, uh, they were living very uh, transit. And like I said, there were always these protectors. Through the years, there were all these protectors. And eventually, I had to move away from him. And then it got hard for me because then I had to turn to other avenues that were new to me. I had to be creative, and I was, to just to survive. But I don't have any tragic stories to tell on the street. Some tragic things happened years later. But um, 
when it came to people like Larock Bay and Pamela Wong. I loved Pamela Wong because when she first saw me, the first words out of her mouth, and I say this in my book, um, and I say this with endearment, she said, girl, you are so cute. You need to take your ass back to Detroit where you came from because this city is going to eat your ass alive. And I was like, damn, for a pretty little young lady, why is she being so hard on me? Uh, but um, Pam, um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, damn, I didn't think this would happen. Um, Pam was the first person that saved me, but I ended up trying to save her. Um, Pam was, um, wow, I didn't think this was going to happen. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Pam was very, Pam had a drug problem. Pam was a heroin addict. And there was this, um, there was this place that sex workers used to go to. And of those who remember the eighties, everyone remembered it. It was called the cameo the Cameo uh, Theater on 8th Avenue. And I'm still living with LaRock Bay, but I would always find myself going to Times Square and finding Pam. And I ended up getting my, uh, when LaRock died, I ended up getting a, a room on my own and um, in Queens, my first room, my first place. And I went to find Pam. And when I found her, it hit me that everybody, she lived up to her nickname and her nickname was Stay Stone Pam. Even though she looked like a smaller version of Diana Ross with the pull back hair and the big old eyes and pretty. Back then we used to call them real as rain because she was unspookable. She, you could not recognize that this was a trans person. She was just that pretty little and so forth, but like an identical Diana Ross. And um, she, um, I came and I took, brung her back to my little room that I had in Queens <laughs> on 141st and between Foch and Rockaway, I'll never forget it. And I let her dry out and I went to the grocery store and when I came back, she was gone. And I think like three days later, I went to the Times Square to find her. And as I'm walking toward the cameo, um, There's an EMS in front of the cameo and they're bringing her out on the gurney. I didn't know that yet until I got up to where the yellow, the yellow line and there was Pam on the gurney and she had um, OD'd in the theater. And it hurt me because I just wanted to return back what she did for me as a 16 year old person. It hurt me because she was the first person who told me to leave, go home. And she made sure, it's like I had so many guardian angels, but her out of everybody, Pam loved me. And she she would go out and do her sex work and she would like, uh, nobody would let me do what they done. And even though they were doing it, None of them wanted to be, wanted me to be her or be what they were doing. And when she left me, I made it a vow to never, I would do everything else, but I would never do, because I, I would be dishonoring them. I would never do sex work. And when I finally did do it, the one or two times that I did do it, I felt that I was dishonoring their, 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 um, their hopes for me. And that's why I knew that I couldn't do sex work because I wasn't good at it. And I knew that they were looking over me that, what are you doing? You are not meant for this. You're better than this or whatever we're doing this because this is all we know. And I, I was a child who came here. For, I came from a middle-class family. I didn't need to even be in New York. I was being rebellious. There was, I don't have none of those stories where my family was, was mistreating me or beating on me or, or going through any of those narratives that you hear, relevant stories that you hear about other trans people. I don't have any of those stories. 
But because I, because I had those stories, those girls didn't even know that by back stories, but they knew by looking at me that this was not for me. You know, yes. so. Oh, wow. Oh, Pam, I love you. Can I get you some tissues? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. So, actually, you were speaking about, because you, just to go back a second. You were speaking about, um, experiences in your childhood and how you don't have necessarily the, you don't have necessarily the narrative that. Oh, tragedy. So you were telling me a story a while ago about um, when your family would leave and you would turn down the blinds. Mm -hmm. Can you tell, can you recount that story? For um, me? Being an only child, um, my parents came from a, a, a very stern type of, of, of family where they, uh, you had chores in our house, even though I was the only child and I had my own bedroom, my own bike, I was a spoiled little child. Um, but I still had chores to do and I was forming into the woman I am today and I would wait till my mom would leave and my dad would leave and I would go into my mother's closet and I would, I wouldn't put her clothes on. I only did that one other time and that came out tragically because I actually wore my mother's coat to school and the principal called home and said, your child has a coat that looks like it wasn't meant for him. They didn't say it was a girl coat. They didn't do any of that. Um, and I never did that again. So my next step was, I'm still gonna play dress up, but I'm gonna not wear her clothes, but I'm gonna wear her shoes. My mother always had the most beautiful, is decorated. My mom was a very high stylish woman. She still is. Um, and I would take her shoes and I would wear her shoes and I had to do my chores. So I would be vacuuming in her shoes. I would, uh, my mother wasn't a wig lady, but I remember I found a hair piece or something and I combed it out and put it on like a wig or whatever. And I was in there vacuuming and all this. So as I have spoken before, that was my transition in the dark because I hadn't become relevant. And relevancy to me is when you come into the public. What's done in the dark, in my opinion, does not make you relevant. It makes it very secretive and something shameful. So I was still in my shame territory because it was done in the dark. It was done in, in secrecy. So in my opinion, I believe that that doesn't make your transition relevant until you actually go out into the public and you have no qualms or any type of thought processes or even boundaries to be trans. Sure. So to then bring it back more so to New York, how do you think the trans communities that you've been a part of have evolved over time? Whoa. Um, there is a, a, in my opinion, a, there's always going to be those, those groups of people who move forward and then there's those who are going to be stagnated. That's why this community, the trans community in particular, is always a work in progress and I think it will always be like that because you will have most trans people who will their transition will still be secrecy their transition will be out of convenience their transition will be out of of necessity and then there will be the revolutionary girls like myself Laverne Cox and so on and so on and and uh, Janet Mock and numerous women who lived their troops out and my idols, Lord Ed, Lords uh, Ashley Hunter, um, Madison Gathers, people who have lived their truth regardless what the world or even the trans community thought, felt, or believed. They lived their truth when it was disgraced by the community and by the the, by the public at hand, they were always 
women and those are the women that I've admired. Those are the women that I have uh, to go forward. I've always looked over my shoulder because I knew that I was standing on theirs. Sure. So tell me about Tell me about your experiences with your education. Oh. Um, I would, yeah, t- tell me about your experiences with your education and specifically how you've come to be where you are at now as far as the organizations you work with, um, the speaking engagements you do. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me how you got to where you are and yes um 15 years ago um 2002 i um i was in a situation where um i was involved with a lot of criminal activity um, and by, what I mean by that is that I was a part of a a ring of of people who had access to stolen credit cards and I was arrested and I was um, sentenced to a state penitentiary and while there um again more angels came to protect me um but this time they were not necessarily gay people they were just a bunch of progressive thinking men and who for some apparent reason my behavior has always been an enigma for people to be curious like why is this person here i was always in 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 environments where i stuck out like a sore thumb and here was another avenue from the street i stuck out once i even though i was uh relevantly in a place where i should have been because i committed a crime i still stuck out because i i wasn't comfortable there i was introverted there. I was scared. I was fearful. And most people in those environments assume that if you've done what I've done, that you shouldn't be scared of anything. You shouldn't be introverted. You shouldn't be frightened of this environment. But I was. And again, through guardian angels, through people who were able to just watch my behavior, they saw that. So things like uh, attending college, um, while in, um, incarcerated was one of the first things that was offered to me and I took it. Um, because of the time that I had there, I only had like 18 months to do, I was able to, I wasn't able to complete there, but when I came home, I was able to uh, enroll in Hunter College. And um, while I was at Hunter College, I met a beneficiary who was able to uh, have me transfer to NYU Tisch School of the Arts. And with this person, this was a romantic relationship that I had with this person. And um, I was able to obtain my first degree, and that was an associate's degree with uh, Tisch School of the Arts, parts of New York University. Um, as a trans woman, I have just learned through, and I wouldn't say learned, I just did it. I ne- it never became a part of people record me announcing that, oh, I'm trans. I just show up and that's just what they saw. And I never really concerned myself if, if I was accepted, if I was sanctioned, if I was a spectacle. I came there with my makeup on and my girl clothes, a girl, girl apparel, my girl mannerisms. And I just did what I saw my idols do, Pam and, and Madison and Candy LaBeja. I just did what they done. Um, maybe not as good and well and as convincingly as they was, but I still did it. So places of education were always curious, like your name is, then I had a male name. 
but you're coming to school in wigs and heels and all of this. And, and they never said that, but there was always these looks of astonishment, curiosity, and sometimes just raw shock and how unapologetic that I was at doing it. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's all I'm going to say to that. Yes. <laughs> um, so, speaking to identity, how does being trans relate to other aspects of your identity, your race, your class, your ability? Whoa. Um, you know... <clears throat> I have a really small circle of friends. Um, I have friends like Jada Downs and Ronald Caldwell and um, my, my, my rock, Daniel Williams. And they are the three people who have been replaced by people like Pam and Candy and Madison, you know. Um, they are my rock. They don't, they show tough love. They. They're supportive and I could come to them and cry, but they also don't take any shit from me either. But I need them and I think we need each other and we hold each other up. Um, yeah, just how does being trans relate to the other aspects of your identity? Um, and then because spirituality has, in my later years, have become my bond, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of meditating. I'm a follower of learning how to be kind to others through how I conduct myself. You know, a lot of times people can say the words, but the actions don't necessarily match. Um, I can, I can be in my high style uh, apparel, but I can also at the same time, be very empathetic to those who may not have the things that I have. And that's a, that's a, a work in progress for me as it may be for anyone else. But there's no effort to do that with me. I'm not doing it to be patted on the head or to even think that that's a part of, but I just know that that's part of my advocacy. That's part of my passion to go the full spectrum of humanity here. That's my whole, there's so many more things to me than just being trans. I'm a spiritual black woman. I'm a advocate, I'm an advocate, I'm a mentor. I'm, um, I'm a very funny person if you get to know me, but I'm also a very private person. Um, I'm with my, my circle, they're working with me with learning how to be a little more less so stiff. They say I'm stiff. They say that I'm so business-like sometimes that it can come across as um, intimidating to people. And I'm working on that. However, it's been so comfortable to be like this. This is how, uh, the type of woman that I'm comfortable with. So it's only so much of that change I'm going to do. There's not, I'm not going to, I'm not getting ready to be uh, Shaniqua. I'm not getting ready to be her. Sorry. I'm, and I don't mean that Shaniqua in a bad way, but I mean that in a, um, very organic way. I am not going to be her. Um, more power to those people who can be that. I like being a very upstanding and um, classy lady, even though there will be some moments where it intimidates people. Um, and in a short phrase that may sound cold, that's, off, that's on them, that ain't on me. I don't really suffer fools for that. I, I, I've worked hard to become this lady and I'm not getting ready to go backwards to make somebody else feel good and knowing that I would be uncomfortable. Even in my lowest days of when I came here at a, a 12, as a, as a 14 year old, as a 16 year old, I had this type of behavior with me because I stuck out, I stood out wherever I went. I was not as, I never lived up to the stereotype or the environment that I was in. So I've always been different. I've always stood out and it's always been genuine. So when I hear people who would say that, like or when my best friends, my circle says to me, oh girl, you need to loosen up a little or girl, you're just too stiff or whatever. I understand it and I tolerate it from my full circle 
because I know that they have my best interests at hand, but there's only so much shit I'm going to take from them as well. Sure. I'm not getting ready to be Shaniqua. I don't know who she is. She does not live nowhere near me or in me. So, and I don't have any judgment towards Shaniqua. It's just not me. Sure. So to pull back to New York City, um, I want to hear two things from you. I want to hear what particular places and spaces in New York City have been most important to you. Okay. And um, part two, okay, I'll let you say that. Yes. One of the uh, greatest things about this city is that memories. On the way here, <laughs> I was uh, pleased that I was able to walk by a formal place that I used to live. I used to have a brown, I used to live in a brownstone over here. And where, where exactly? On Lewis and um, it was 9107, 9107 Lewis Avenue and um, in Brooklyn. And that kind of means a lot to me because a lot of uh, growth came out of that apartment. Then there's places like uh, Port Authority where I learned how to grow up and see different type of apparent, uh, uh, personalities and meet different type of people, the good, the bad, the horrific, the, 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 the predators, to, and even some wonderful people. Um, another place, NYU, um, Tisch School of the Arts meant so much to me because the benefactor who was able to send me there he moved to Providence Town and he never got to see me graduate. You know, um, I continue to look up Albert McMean and Albert McMean has either fell off the face of the earth or died or just don't want to be bothered. Um, but I find myself at least once a week finding myself near Tisch School of the Arts. I have to walk by it. It's like a good spirit to me. And then there's the recent, there's my church. Um, 86 and Broadway, Rivers of Living Waters, how they have affirmed my, and made me come full circle of the human being that I am, the woman that I am, the affirming who I am spiritually as a black trans woman, as a spiritual woman, as a person who receives support when some of the most horrific things like you know, the estrangement from my family and moments and how they've been able to counsel me, to understand me, to be there for me. And then there is prison. Um, being in New York State Correctional Facility and being able to survive that and not have it affect me like it, more than likely a lot of people feel that it should have. It didn't affect me as harshly as it may have affected other people. And I figured that that's a blessing because I never went in there assuming that I was innocent. I went in there because I did something wrong and I paid my debt to society. And I never looked at it was a them against a them and us situation. It was, this is what you do when you break the law and this is what happens when you do that. So it has always held held some side, some sort of affirming me that, uh, and it keeps me uh, structured to never venture that life again. So this is a big one. And I really, if you need a second to think about it, feel free. My question for you is, are there aspects of the trans community in New York City, whether it be past or present, that you want especially remembered? <laughs> um, I, want, I want to remember, or that we as a community should remember, that from the beginnings of Stonewall, before Stonewall, and as we are now, that there are a lot of unsung people that don't get mentioned. That young trans person who's sleeping on the pier still in 2018, that young trans person who's still putting clothes in a bag and changing clothes in a, in a bus station, um, 
to that young trans person who's coming from Utah and coming to New York to affirm and be and to receive freedom and knowing that this city and maybe even this country has allowed certain metropolitan cities to accept them and to take them in and allow them to free themselves. I believe that they will always exist. I'm just so glad that this city continues to be the anchor what doesn't sink for trans people. Of course, there's difficulties, there's growth that needs to be done, but it's better than the child who's in Utah or the trans girl who's from Jamaica, the Caribbean, or from Uganda or from Nigeria or from Russia. Um, coming here to this city where there's a possibility to look and see people who look just like you, talk just like you, express themselves like you may want to or you are expressing yourself. I want this, this memory of me to know that I was one of those people. I am one of those people. Yes. So speaking more so to that and maybe more so to the the issues that we face as trans people now and systemic issues. Um, my question for you, and feel free, you don't have to go too into any specific details if you'd rather not, um, but what, have you ever been discriminated against at your job or school because of your gender or other aspects of your identity? You know, this is where... And you don't... We can skip over this. No, I, I, I can answer it because mine is pretty quick. If I have, I didn't recognize it because I was so busy with my, 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 my narrative. I've never lived apologetically, even when I didn't know what apologetically meant. I remember being on the train in 1983, and there's a cut in my hand right here. I remember being on the, they used to call, it was the double A's. They don't have them anymore. It was a double A train. And I remember I was going to the village because we only had territorial places in the city then to go to. And I was going to the village and there were these, uh, what we call dangerous boys or trade or, or banshee boys or just ignorant people. And I was on the train and there was this, this guy who, had this, this piece of steel in his hand, like he had took it off of a car and he was coming through the trains and as he bumped me and I said, what the hell? And as he went to turn around, he swung it and I did this on my hand and he cut my hand right here. And this is when um, St. Vincent Hospital was still open. And I went to the, uh, to the uh, emergency room and they sewed me up or whatever. But I, I remember that, um, this city has has I've never I've just never lived on I just always lived unapologetically even when it was not necessarily popular or comfortable to do it and this is why I say when I see young trans people living their truth in Brooklyn at three o'clock in the afternoon affirming themselves where maybe in 1982, they couldn't affirm themselves as they do today. That is progress, any way you look at it. When the word faggot is no longer about identity, it's about lack of a manhood. You hear a young boy saying, stop acting like a faggot, and it, it has no sexual tone to it, it has no identity to how it used to mean. Um, and that's, that's, to me, that's progress. The word is still ugly. The word still holds some pain there, but it has progressed. We're going, we're taking baby steps, but at least we're taking steps. Sure. So um, tell me a bit more about, you mentioned a hospital just now. Tell me a bit more about your experiences with um, healthcare. Wow. With healthcare, I have always, you know, and this is something new for me. I was, you know, when I got my bachelor's degree in, um, 
in general business and executive law for state, county, and federal forms. Um, of course, you become very, or rather I became very affluent in knowing the language, but I became very concerned as though as we were our narrative as trans people as lgbt people was becoming relevant in this country on every scalp of the word that um it became my a part of my passion to be a part of the learning process because everyone's not going to get the opportunity to go to college. Everyone's not going to want to go to college. Some people don't feel it's necessary and it may not be necessary. However, it is my duty as part of my narrative and my passion to give, to move it forward, to, to push it forward, to pass it out. I don't move forward if I don't give it back. Um, um, just to bring it back a little bit, um, to maybe some more specifics. Um, when, if you've accessed medical transition, how did you do that? And as a follow-up, have you ever gotten healthcare outside of licensed or legal means? Yes, um, there's a thing called the back rooms and the back rooms still exist today. There's that uh, person who knows how to uh, go to the warehouses or wherever they stock up their home or their back room with illegal uh, medications and syringes and pills and so forth. Those places still exist. Um, I remember going through a couple of pumping parties where you would have a, a person who knows how to put uh, silicone and glue and other foreign objects in your face, in your chest, in your hips, in your wherever a person felt the need for it. Um, I've experienced that. Um, however, as we progressed as a community and we were able to uh, get away from the marginalization and, and um, advocate for uh, legitimate health care with our state government, we were able to have things like Medicaid and, and other insurance companies to have us do those uh, procedures in a legal type of way. So what about hormone access? Can you talk to me about hormone um, access? That has changed so much and it continues to change according to the administration of the state. In the Pataki years, it was very complicated to get anything on hormones off of a Medicaid because we had a administration that was so anti-trans that he hired a health commissioner that uh, sanctioned his policies. And when he left and we got in Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo brought in a very empathetic administration, a very medically, medical first and mental health first uh, priority, not necessarily trying to follow some narrative or political narrative that was influenced by religion or someone's financial goal. They were able to allow us as trans women to uh, get progressive health care. And that's where we are today in this state, New York. Yes. So step back from specifically, yes. Mm -hmm. Do you have, you have to go to 11, correct? 10 after. 10 after? Mm -hmm. So we have a little bit more time? Mm -hmm. You know what? I really, I really have to pee. Mm -hmm. Do you have to pee? No. So what I'm going to actually do, this might sound weird, but can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. And then you can answer it while. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question I have for you, and feel free to take your time with this one. I'll be just a second. Uh, I'm sorry for the, those listening. Um, do you feel that you've ever had to choose between expressing your gender identity and economic security or safety? Yes and no. Um, when it comes to me having to explain it, I'll explain it to a, a governmental uh, entity like Social Security or HRA or uh, a medical, a medical uh, organization. But uh, spiritually or generally speaking to a, a group of people at a uh, 
at a function or an empowerment group, that's a choice. That is not something that is mandatory. I think that it's not youthful unless I'm trying to use it in an advocacy type of, type of condition. Um, it continues to be a work in progress. Um, I don't particularly feel that it's necessary that I, or anyone for that matter, explain to someone about their, um, their medical condition to a bunch of people that have no reason or access to help take away or add to. So, thank you. Um, do you have any experiences with mental health or mental illness? You know, the process with this uh, transgender health care, there seems to be this narrative that if you're trans that you have some sort of mental dysphoria and it's almost insulting and you have to have a, a strong, it's almost required personally that you have a strong tolerance for the language that's going to be asked of you. However, if you become very emotional about it in front of these people like medical doctors and psychiatric uh, uh, entities, uh, it will slow the process to obtain the things that you want to obtain. So you almost have to just get through it. It bothers me that that's so sad because everyone's not that strong. A lot of people have issues that affect their mental health. Uh, so it's, for me, I have not allowed questions about my mental health to become a barrier for me. I just get it over with because if I don't get it over with, I may not obtain them hormones. I may not be able to get the things that I need. So I try to, I wouldn't say speed the process up, but I surely don't want to lack the process or slow the process down because I feel some sort of way that someone's talking about mental health. I know that this is one of the requirements that still exist today, maybe 10 years from now, one year from now, six months from now, that we won't have to address mental illness because of my health status and the, the health conditions that I'm trying to obtain hormones. Or if I'm a trans male, I'm trying to uh, t uh, obtain T-shots. Uh, I shouldn't have to go through this questionnaire about my mental health because to me, I thought it would be different. But to those um, in the bureaucracy, Obviously, they don't think so. Absolutely. I totally hear you. There's a lot of gatekeeping in yes. the medical community. So you, you have a little bit of time left, and I wanted to kind of move more towards our concluding segment. Um, if you wanted people to hear one thing from you, what would it be? You have to keep your eyes wide open your mind able to move past your fears, your intolerance that's given to you or that you may even have to move forward. Because when I have done that, meaning that when I haven't been progressive, when I have been stagnated, when I've been hurt, when I've allowed pain to lead me or stagnate me, nobody wins and starting with me. You must get over the hump of pain and transgressions and the ability of people holding you down or, or an entity holding you down like uh, HRA, a government, our president, our mayor, our health commissioners, our service providers. You have to know what you want your situation to look like. Even if you may not get there, you gotta know what you want. You cannot, in my opinion, go about it day by day. You gotta know what you wanna get to, even if you don't know how to get there. Because if you don't, someone else will pick your narrative for you and you will be left behind more than likely. You won't move forward because that won't be your vision, it'll be someone else's. Yes, yes. So, um, if, if you wanted to be remembered for one thing, what would it be? that I was proactive, not only for myself, but surely for those who are coming after me by 
having the examples through my narrative and through my blood, sweat and tears and time and efforts that I did something that, and my name might not necessarily be what's important, that, that they do know that there was somebody who's been here before, that they're not on an island. Because when you're in this lifestyle and you're ostracized or marginalized or you believe that you are, you will live up to that and all those negativities that come with it. And it starts with you. If you don't believe it, don't accept nobody else to believe it. If you do believe it, it gives you the opportunity to move forward. Let them catch on to you, not you catch on to them. So to kind of wrap up, one thing I didn't ask you a lot about is that you've written a memoir. Yes. Can you tell me a bit about that process? The and process was like yes. therapy. The pro it was a therapy session on paper. It was, a, 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 it was writing journals like a diary. It was telling stories and getting pain off of me, out of me, onto a piece of paper so I can move forward. If I didn't know how to write, I will probably be a therapist, great client. And I took a shortcut and said, I'm going to get therapy through self. I'm going to get therapy through writing it on paper. It was a therapy that continues today, just, just not in part of the memoir, because that had to stop at some point. Um, my book is about my personal journey as it was, as it is, and how it will be through what I've lived through and for me, by me, but to others, that they're able to see that it ain't easy for nobody. It surely wasn't for me and it ain't gonna be easy for you. But when you know that there's a, there's a roadmap, there's an idea, there's a concept that you can grab hold to, maybe this story could help just one person and more than anything, it helped me. If that one person was me, then I did what I needed to do. So do you have anyone else in mind that you think would be interested in participating? In, yes. Yes. Could you say those, those names? Probably yes. my, uh, I have another person who I'm very close with. Her name is Alexis de Chanel. Um, her on um, this probably the person I mentor, Christina, uh, Nicole China Black. You can Facebook these ladies. Christina who? Christina Nicole China Black. Oh, oh I see. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I uh, mentor her. She's a young person who I believe her story is relevant. Um, and then there's Alexis de Chanel, who is a good friend of mine, someone who I vibe with. And, and then there is uh, Jada Renee Downs, who is a part of my inner circle, because I only have three close friends, and we're all like a little, a little, uh, a little base there. So those are the three people that I could, you know, that you could probably look up on Facebook. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I'd just like to say thank you that um, you gave me the opportunity to participate in such a wonderful, necessary, and relevant project. Um, more than anything, I like to just put the word on relevant, that we need to record and um, historically put our stories into history and seal them and release them onto the generation before us. Because as we make history, so will they. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure, Grace. Thank you. It's also been a pleasure. Thank you.